morning, church. Well, this morning, we are continuing our series through the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, if you haven't already uh, accessed our digital study guide, we do uh, recommend that you do that. Uh, there are application questions on there for you. Uh, I've been informed uh, that if you simply log on to our Wi-Fi, our guest Wi-Fi, the page will come up where you can choose what language bulletin you want to download. And at the bottom of, of that download, there's a link where you can uh, get the digital study guide. It gives you all the background information. And again, as December rolls around, December 1st, we'll release another one for the month of December. But let me start with a bit of review uh, for those of you who haven't been with us. <clears throat> the Beatitudes are the first portion, the introductory portion of the Sermon on the Mount. There are nine blessed are statements, but we take it as eight Beatitudes, and you're going to see why uh, today. And that's in Matthew chapter 5. But just for the sake of review, uh, I want to begin with this word blessed and what it means. And we talked about this two weeks ago. So if you weren't with us, this is a little bit of, or if you were with us two weeks ago, this is a little bit of a review. The word blessed, when Jesus says blessed are, that's a statement of description, not prescription. Meaning Jesus doesn't say blessed will you be, or, or you will receive blessing, or you will be blessed if you are this way. But he's saying blessed are those who are pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. And so he's describing a state. It's descriptive. He's describing the values of heaven that are held by his disciples as they live here on earth. So as you and I seek to follow Christ and we have a relationship with Jesus, he begins to cultivate character within you. And that character turns into values and values begin to shape your decisions. And when you begin to live in a way where your heart is decisively kingdom-minded and your values are shaped by the things of heaven rather than the things of this earth, then Jesus says you are blessed. But a little bit of context. Blessed, some Bible translators, and it's right to do this, they say, uh, you know, blessed, since it's not like Deuteronomy where you, you do something and you get God's blessing, it's really a state of being that blessed should be translated as happy. And that is correct. And so in some translations, it says happy are the pure in heart. Right? But when you look at an American context and you say happy, we see happiness very different. We see happiness as, as an immediate emotion, uh, a state of joy. Uh, and, and, and it's fleeting. What makes you happy is different from what the Beatitudes are saying you ought to be happy about. In fact, the happiness that Jesus talks about is so foreign to our natural understanding of happiness that some scholars, uh, in particular Jonathan Pennington, which is a book I commend to you. It is a difficult read, but it's accessible. It's in English, uh, and that's recommended on the study guide. He argues that the best translation in the English for blessed is actually flourishing. And that helps you understand the context, that Jesus is writing to Jews, or Matthew is writing to Jews, and Jesus is speaking to Jews and Gentiles, but predominantly Jews, and he's saying, you could flourish even under Roman oppression. So under Roman oppression, there were many Jews who were poor. They didn't have Roman citizenship. They didn't enjoy the status economically, the comfort of Roman citizens. And so they were impoverished. Others were suffering oppression and persecution. 
because they wanted to worship Yahweh and because they were Jewish. And what Jesus is saying is that even if you are persecuted, even if you are poor, that you can flourish. You can flourish in a state where the world says, no, no, that's not good. That's not good. You don't want to be mourning. You don't want to be poor in spirit. And and, uh, and and you want to be proud of who you are. You want to achieve. And Jesus says, no, 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 my kingdom is the opposite. Today we're in Matthew 5, 9. So you can take God's word and turn there. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. And there's a little bit of background before we we look at the text, right? A little bit more background. Is that because Israel was under Roman oppression, there were various groups who were kind of like the rebel resistance. Uh, There was a group in particular called the Zealots. And the Zealots, it's not some type of gummy worm, but but the Zealots were zealous. And and they were anti-Roman government. And so they looked at the Old Testament prophets and the prophecies, and they misinterpreted this. And they said, you know, we're going to have this military kingdom and where our Messiah is going to come, and he's going to lead us into military warfare. And so, so they went and started having these violent protests and violent rebellions. And so, so they said, look, we're willing to fight for Yahweh. Therefore, we are loyal sons of God. And so Jesus comes onto the scene. And what does Matthew 5.9 say? What does Matthew 5.9 say? Jesus says, flourishing or blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It's very interesting that Jesus comes onto the scene, speaks to his audience, and says, no, 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 it's not the zealots. It's not those who take up a sword and fight in my name. It is the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. So the first thing we're going to do today, because the verse is pretty simple, is we're going to explain what a peacemaker is not, because how we understand peace may be different from the biblical understanding of peace. Then we're going to see, based on this context, what it means to be a peacemaker. So first, what is a peacemaker not? What is not a peacemaker? A peacemaker is not someone who is overly tolerant of of everyone's opinion. I mean, you, you can see how this is very popular today. That's not a peacemaker. A peacemaker who says, you know what, I don't really agree, but I shouldn't say anything. Because if I say something, it will lead to conflict, but I'm just a peaceful person. Okay. A peacemaker is not someone who starts their morning in meditation. Though it's good to meditate on scripture, but just because you're, I feel overwhelmingly at peace, that's not a peacemaker. That's not a peacemaker. A peacemaker uh, is not a coffee maker. Although for me, I'm just like, oh, whoever comes and makes coffee, you are the peacemaker. You know. Um, but a peacemaker is not a coffee maker. Uh, a peacemaker is not someone who avoids conflict and says, you know what, I don't really want to get into it. Right? So I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to stand up for truth. Um, that's not a peacemaker. What is a peacemaker? Well, surely the world has misunderstood peacemaking. I want you to take a look at this photo. I had to, okay? So I know worse things happened this week, but I, I, I decided on the sermon before Miles Garrett swung his helmet uh, at Mason Rudolph's head. You know, just look it up, not right now. But, but this happened a while ago, and there's a reason why I chose this. Um, ben Simmons is the guy on top. He's, he's got the guy in a headlock, and he actually got into a fight with another guy named Joel Embiid in an NBA game. Uh, oh, no, no, no. Uh, Carl Anthony's Towns, the guy on the floor, got in a fight with Joel Embiid, another guy. Ben Simmons, 
he jumps on top of Carl Anthony Towns, holds him down, and it looks like UFC, right? It looks like Ultimate Fight. It looks like uh, it looks like that that he's fighting Carl Anthony Towns. Carl Anthony Towns is the guy on the ground. Ben Simmons is the guy having him in the headlock, holding him in the headlock. Now, here's why I chose this. The official statement of the referees was Joel Embiid, he's ejected. Carl Anthony Towns, you know, or, or they're, they're both penalized. They're both receiving penalty. But the guy like this on top, no penalty, no technical, no ejection, no penalty from the NBA. And you know what the official statement was? He was playing the role of a peacemaker. That's literally the words used. You can Google it. Literally the words used by the referees, as well as the NBA, the official statement was that he is a peacemaker. Beloved, that is not a biblical peacemaker. You know, he is, he is entering into conflict, but, but you don't hold someone down and choke them down. What is a peacemaker? A peacemaker, point number one, point number one is mediating peace, the peace of Christ, and flourishing in his family. Okay? Uh, and, and, and that is point number one. I know it's a little bit different on your, your handouts. Uh, on your handout, I have a different point for you. Okay, I have a different point for you, but just go with what's on the slide. Okay, mediating the peace of Christ and flourishing in his family. Okay, that is point number one. Okay, so what is a peacemaker? A peacemaker, again, is not someone who avoids conflict, but someone who, one scholar, Scott McKnight, he explains that a peacemaker is someone who enters between a warring party and mediates understanding reconciliation and peace. So far from someone who avoids conflict or far from someone who doesn't have conflict, the peacemaker is the person who does the difficult thing. The peacemaker enters into a conflict and says, I'm willing to get my hands dirty. I'm willing to jump in between because I want to foster understanding and reconciliation and I'm not going to do it by holding someone down in a headlock. Okay? But basically, that is what it means, mediating the peace of Christ and flourishing in his family. Okay, so, so, so look, at, look at the text now, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. You see that the mediators of peace in Christ are flourishing by heavenly standards, not by earthly standards. Because by earthly standards, you want to fight. You want to fight for what you believe. You want to be right and you want to win a fight, whether it's a military battle, whether it's a legal battle, whether it's simply an argument, an argument over who's the better sports team, right? You want to win that battle, right? But the mediators are very different, okay? And in fact, this is nothing new. What we see from scriptures, from the scriptures, is that is that the Old Testament prophets have always spoken about the Messiah as coming with peace. The Messiah would come with peace. The Messiah would be a peacemaker. And Jesus knows that among his crowds, there's religious leaders, there's Jews who don't understand the Messiah, but there are pious Jews there. There were certain Jews who were listening to Jesus. They don't fully understand who he is, but these Jews, they understood the Old Testament and their hearts were near and dear to God. And they would have they would have remembered Isaiah 9-6, which is popular during Christmas time, right? Isaiah 9-6, for, for to, unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. So what type of government? And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, 
Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace is not just uh, the name of, 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 a, of a tea bag company, right? But I, I know there's a tea company called Prince of Peace, but it's actually the Messiah. Zechariah 9.10. And I want you to understand the difference between the type of peace that the Messiah comes versus what this world thinks is peace. Okay? Zechariah 9.10. It says the Messiah will speak peace to the nations. He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, meaning Jerusalem will no longer have to defend itself through military warfare. There won't be any need for military warfare. The battle bow shall be cut off, meaning no more weapons, right? Right now, you need defense. So I'm not saying that there shouldn't be any military defense. But what I am saying is that the understanding of God's kingdom and his values are that there won't be any need for weapons because the Messiah will speak peace to the nations, plural, not just Israel, but all the nations. And his rule shall be from sea to sea, meaning there is peace across the face of this land and from the river to the ends of the earth. Okay, And and so that's how we understand this lasting peace, very different from the world's understanding of peace. Let me give you one more prophecy or prophetic text. Isaiah 52, verse 7. It says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. And this is in the context of the Lord's coming. And it speaks of this Messiah who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now the Old Testament Hebrew understanding of peace is shalom. And the beautiful thing about shalom is it begins in here. Shalom is a holistic, robust peace that begins in your heart. And, you, and you, the only way you experience shalom is to be in the presence of God. And for us, and even in the Old Testament, that means you have a relationship with God. That if you have peace because of the relationship you have with God, you can actually extend that internal relationship outward towards your relationship with others. Your internal relationship with God impacts your external relationship with others. And as a result, you can have peace and reconciliation. Okay, That is the understanding of shalom. Now, how does the world understand shalom? What is a truce? What is the meaning of a truce? What is the meaning of a peace treaty? Is there truly peace? You can have two nations who historically hate each other and they agree because of sanctions or because of the United Nations or because of pressure or because it's to their best interest, whether economically or they just can't fight a war. They're saying, you know what, we're going to have truce, we're going to have peace, but it's superficial, it's not shalom. But But the world would say that's peace. Okay, we're at peace because we're not fighting. Just because there's no fire and just because they're not fighting doesn't mean there's peace, right? Doesn't mean there's peace because historically you could have two people groups who hate each other. And if something comes up, well, there might be a cold war. There might be this ongoing little war, right? And, and later on when another generation arises, there could be warfare again. Think in the same way about your relationships, you could not like someone and go to work, or it could be a family member, and you, could, uh, you know, you know, we just we don't fight, so there's peace. There's not peace because in your heart, you're not at peace with them, and they might not be at peace with you. 
So Jesus talks about a very different peace. And I want to ask you this morning, do you have peace with God? And, and if you say, well, you know what, I'm not really doing, like God isn't really mad at me, and I'm not really mad at him, but, but I don't know, I just don't feel content with life. Then are you really reconciled to God? Are you reconciled with your brother and sister in Christ? Again, how the world defines peace is a superficial, as long as there's no conflict, as long as no one gets hurt, there's peace. As long as Ben Simmons stopped Carl Anthony Towns from escalating the conflict, he's a peacemaker. He's not a peacemaker. Because afterwards, they went on Twitter and started tearing each other down. That's how our world works, right? And so, so Jesus is talking about a different type of peace. He brings a peace that requires, number one, reconciliation with him. That the world cannot reconcile with each other until they have true inner reconciliation with him. Colossians 1, verse 20. Colossians 1, verse 20, explains how Jesus is our true and better peacemaker. So before we can have peace with others, Colossians explains how Jesus on the cross made peace between God and sinners. So the first movement of peace is to, one, recognize that there is a war going on from the beginning of time between holiness versus sin, between God versus our sinful hearts. And the beauty of that is that God makes peace for us by sending his son, Jesus Christ, as a, as a substitutionary sacrifice. But we must begin first by dealing with the internal question of do we have internal peace with God? And that begins by confessing our sin, confessing that we have sinned against God and that we need him, and asking him for forgiveness and if we haven't received God's forgiveness, if we haven't dealt with God, if you are not dealing with God daily, then it's very hard to have peace in our relationships with other people. You know, I'll share transparently with you that a lot of times if I have conflict, whether it's in my family or whether it's with people, and I can blame it on everything, oh, it's just a stressful situation. Oh, I didn't have my coffee this morning, right? I didn't have my coffee or my coffee was too weak this morning. You know, I used the Keurig and I didn't have the pour over. You know, so I had a bad day. Or, or it's the traffic situation. I'm just not at peace. So uh, really, probably I haven't spent time that day truly praying to God. It's interesting that when you pray to God, it's different when you complain to people or when you complain to your spouse or when you complain versus complaining to God. You try it. There's something called lament. I, I mean, I really want you to try it. I really want you to try it. Instead of complaining to, to other people, complain to God. And what I mean by that is you start telling God honestly, saying, God, I'm really not happy with my situation at work. Or I'm really frustrated over this person that's been assigned to the same project as me. Or I'm really frustrated with my spouse right now. I'm just not at peace, Lord. I, I'm not at peace and I know I should be. But just keep praying. And you know what happens is, is, is the Spirit begins to work in you if you're a believer, and you begin to start praying for that person. You begin to say, God, but you know, but, but I know I need to be more patient. Lord, help me to be more patient. But God, maybe I'm, maybe I'm being sinful. God, I, forgive me. Right? So you start with, dear God, I am complaining. I don't have peace with someone else. And then you say, God, you know what? I, I'm just not at peace with you. I confess. And then... You start praying for the other person and then go to work the next day. Then go into your project group. 
and you see the person, and you've been praying, you've been praying for them, it's a whole different perspective. How can you be a peacemaker if you don't first have peace with God? So everything begins first with the internal relation with God. If there's no internal peace with God, then no doubt you're going to have you're not going to have external peace with the people that that are around you, and then it's very hard to see external peace in life, right? And you see this throughout Paul Paul's epistles, even in the book of Ephesians. You can see it in Colossians 2, uh, Colossians as well, right? Colossians T O O 2, not Colossians chapter 2. But you see it in Colossians, you see it in Ephesians, that first there's peace with God. It's Christ that breaks down that barrier of sin between us and God. Then Paul uses the language saying he, he, he breaks down the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. So there is no racial reconciliation. And, and let me be clear, racial reconciliation is a clear and necessary application of the gospel. Apart from the gospel, it's just social justice. But, but if you go to someone and say, hey, look, you're Jew, I'm Gentile, you're from the Mandarin congregation, I'm from the English congregation, you know, you have Chinese values, I have whatever values, you're from the Cantonese value, whatever, you know, uh, and, and, or, or you're from the youth, that's a whole different culture, right? A whole different culture. And I'm from the adults, you know, we don't understand each other, you know, and, and, and you, you, you think that way and you go to them, that's just, that's just your cause. But if you say, hey, look, we need to be reconciled because we are Christians, then it becomes a gospel application. And Paul understands that, that there is no racial reconciliation, truly, unless there is first a gospel reconciliation between God and man. It's because you have a relationship with God that you understand that people in the Mandarin congregation, people in the Candies congregation, people in the youth, and people who are not like you ethnically, culturally, or socioeconomically, that they are first made in the image of God. And secondly, if you are both brothers and sisters in Christ, it is because this barrier vertically has been broken down that now horizontally we must break down the barrier because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Very clear. It is the internal relation with God that generates the external reconciliation. And only then do we understand peacemaking. And this is why peacemaking is not a superficial, we just don't fight, therefore we have peace. There's a connection between peacemaking in, in verse, uh, verse 9 and our eternal destiny. So, I want you to understand the movement, how God changes us. Um, this is not an idea that I made up, and uh, our children's director, Katie Lee, brought this idea to us because she heard it on a podcast. I Googled around trying to find a source, and I found like all these pastors using this same illustration. I can't find the source. But it's this movement from internal, external, eternal. So God deals with, with us internally. It impacts our relationships externally, and ultimately there is an eternal perspective and value. Look once again back at Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, and notice what it says. It says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called, future tense, they shall be called, future tense, sons of God. Now there's a lot of things here. There's a lot of things going on here. Why in the Greek is it not techna, children, because sons of God applies to male and female. Why is it the Greek word for sons? Why is it the masculine? Why? I think we have to ask that question. I think it's important because, one, 
Jesus is talking about the inheritance that we receive as eternal sons of God, both male and female, receive this. Okay, so there's a couple things. In Jewish thought, you would use the phrase, you are a son of, and fill in the blank, and it, it could, people say that today too, but it's either an insult or a praise, or your identity. And when, when someone says, you are the son of the devil, they're not criticizing your parents. They're criticizing your character. They're saying you're acting like you are generated from the devil. Okay? But if they were to say you are a son of Yahweh, then what they're saying is your heart, being this peacemaker, your heart reflects the heart of God. Your, your heart reflects what we read and what we pray and what we see in the Old Testament about Yahweh. I, I want you to see where we find this. In Matthew 23, 15, Jesus calls the Pharisees uh, son of hell, but I will say sons of hell, and you'll see why. If you look at what it says on there, and um, the ESV has translated son into children more generally, but the Greek word there is son. It's the masculine, and the New American Standard retains the accurate, uh, the accurate rendering, right? And so it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around the sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. So Jesus used this type of talk towards the Pharisees. And he's saying, you make disciples, and when you make disciples, their character reflects that they're from hell. And when Jesus makes disciples, he's saying they will be sons of God. Male or female, they will be sons of God. That's the first reason. The second reason, John Nolan, in his commentary on Matthew, uh, he, he, he points out this interesting fact that, that there were rights in Near Eastern culture that belonged to sons. And if you do further study outside of Nolan's commentary, uh, then you will see that there were certain rights that belonged only to sons and not daughters. And so, so the firstborn son would receive the inheritance. And then it would have passed down to the secondborn son, etc. Right? And, and that's what it was like in ancient society. And even in certain uh, Eastern cultures today. But Jesus, he says in other places, right, you understand that whether you are a male or female, if you have Christ, your eternal inheritance is Jesus, it's eternity in heaven, it's all the rewards that come with a relationship with Christ. Male or female, you are sons. You receive the eternal reward of sonship. And so this is why Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, those who first internally have peace with God through a relationship with Jesus Christ, and therefore begin to experience external peace with their relationship with others. And then as a result, then it's, it belongs to them. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall be called sons of God. But there's also a relationship between the peacemaker and and the righteous, right? So this leads us to point number two. Point number two is persecuted for Christ, yet flourishing on his account. 
And what I mean by that, persecuted for Christ, you're flourishing on his account because of what he did on the cross for us. Because he was persecuted, because he was reviled for us, for our sins, we, when we are persecuted, we are flourishing. I know on your outline it says the persecuted in Christ are flourishing by heavenly standards. Okay, but, but I believe that persecuted for Christ, yet flourishing on his account, you know, better convey this. Okay, so, so what you see uh, that happened was that Friday by noon, I sent in my outline, which is good, and last night, or, or yesterday, or whenever I got a chance, I said, you know what, this could be better explained. And so I changed the PowerPoint. So that's my bad that you have something different printed uh, versus something that's on there. But if we move to a completely digital PowerPoint, this can be resolved probably. Okay, I mean, digital bulletin. Okay, so there's a connection between peacemaker and righteousness. James chapter 3, verse 18. James chapter 3, verse 18, it says, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Well, those who make peace, that's the peacemaker, right? And those who make peace, it says a harvest of righteousness is being sown. The righteousness that, that Jesus and James is ta- are talking about is character righteousness, They're talking about righteous character, godly character. Now look at Matthew 5, verses 10 to 12. I want you to see first that this is is a one beatitude. There are two blessed are statements, but they're basically saying the same thing. Verses 11 and 12 are expanding on, giving more detail about verse verse 10. So so let's read it. It says, blessed are those who, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, give me more detail. Blessed are, verse 11, you when others revile you. That's a form of persecution. And, and, and those persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely. So false accusation, that's persecution, right? Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So there's a couple things going on here. Well, one, righteousness is, is what you would be persecuted for. Okay, so righteousness sake, right? But what does that mean? What is righteousness sake? Well, look at verse 11 once again. It's very clear. At the end of verse 11, it says, on my account. So there's a lot of people who say, well, you know what? I'm being politically persecuted. You know, Jesus cares about that. He does. But that's not what he's talking about here. You know, Romans 13 in 1 Peter, he talks about submitting to the governing authorities, even under persecution. But here, he's saying, when you are persecuted because of righteousness' sake, meaning godly character, because of your faith. So when you're trying to live out godly character, or when you're trying to be the peacemaker, and they get mad at you instead, okay, and you're saying, I'm doing this in the name of Christ, I'm trying to reconcile people in the name of Christ, and then they take it out on you, That's persecution in the name of Christ on his account because of him. That's what it says in the text. Very clear. So what is righteousness? It's godly character, but not just godly character for the sake of good character. Good character for the name of Christ, and someone falsely accuses you of something. That gives you another clue. False accusation. So if the accusations are true, then that's not what Jesus is talking about. So if you were to say, you know what? Abortion is murder. True statement. Therefore, I am going to go and vandalize the abortion clinic in the name of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. 
I'm going to go and I'm going to set this place on fire, not spiritually through the Holy Spirit, but through arson. I'm going to light this place on fire. Cursed be those who, you know, run this clinic, right? I don't believe in, you know, Planned Parenthood. I believe in sovereign plan. So I'll burn this thing down. That's, and they accuse you of that. This doesn't apply to you because that's a true accusation. You committed you committed arsonary or you, you committed vandalism, right? It's a true statement. So, so this is a high standard. One, you have to have godly character, and they persecute you for that. But the character is because of Christ, and it's a false accusation. So Jesus kind of breaks it down very clearly. You know, this is what's going to happen to Christians. This is what's going to happen to Christians. They will be falsely accused of being bigots. You will be. Why? Because you took a stand for your biblical values. You will be insulted for how you raise your kids. You will be insulted for your views on gender or marriage or abortion and life. You will be looked down upon. They might sue your business because you refuse to do something that compromised your faith. Or you pull your kids out of a certain school program. Or you take a certain stand. Or, or, or you open your mouth in a conversation. Not because... Because you're willing to engage in necessary conflict, right? And so you open your mouth and then you get accused of things. But you're doing it in the name of Christ. This does apply to us. Right? The persecution is different from back then. But the persecution is true for us if you are falsely accused. And you know what, beloved? That's what they did to Jesus, isn't it? They accused him of all kinds of false crimes. They reviled him and insulted him. They turned him over to the authorities and they had him killed. But because that happened to him, you and I can have forgiveness of our sins. And so that's what we mean when we say it's on his account. We're able to flourish through persecution because we see the example in Jesus Christ. Jesus flourished under all of that oppression persecution and evil he flourished because he held on to the values of heaven not the values of this world right now you look at you look at verse 12 now and it says rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you uh, so heaven kingdom of heaven kingdom of god it's synonymous we explained that during week one of the ser- series uh, it is to rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted, which is, which is not natural. It's supernatural. This is why you, you need to have peace with God first, because naturally nobody will rejoice during persecution, but supernaturally you can be like the apostles. You can be like the apostles, right, who rejoiced in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, when Peter and the other apostles were flogged before the Jewish leaders, after Pentecost, they, it says they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And what that means is they're like, dude, I am so privileged to be able to suffer in the name of Jesus. But if I suffered because I have bad character, that's different. But if I'm accused and suffered and imprisoned because I stood for Christ, what a worthy thing. You know, that's something, that's something to tweet about, right? And so, so, so in, in that sense, this is supernatural. And, and the reward is not now, the reward is eternal. But I want to spend more time on this 
this word, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And on this one, beloved, if you allow me in love to kind of push at you a little bit, because this text pushed at me, right? Because I read this text and I'm like, yeah, man, the Pharisees are so evil. The Pharisees are so evil, so judgmental. And you know what God was kind of showing me through as I looked throughout Matthew, in particular Matthew 23, as I began to see myself in the mirror. I'm like, you know, Hanley, you're pretty proud a lot of times. You judge people. You know, you do judge people. Um, even, th- even though I, I love people, I pray for people, you know, I have a judgmental spirit at times. Right? And, and, and I want you to see this, okay? So Matthew 23 I put this up for you. I know that the text is a little small, so you can pull it up on your Bibles. Jesus says to the Pharisees exactly the point persecuted the prophets who were before you, right? But the Pharisees didn't see themselves as persecutors of the prophets, but venerators of the prophets, right? So in Matthew 23, verse 29, Jesus, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. So what does that mean? That the prophets of the Old Testament or heroes and martyrs of the Jewish faith, they may have had some monuments to venerate them or to give honor to them. And maybe they're gravestones, right? They're graves where they celebrate it. And look at verse 30. It says, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. So what Jesus is saying is that he's saying, you guys are thinking, man, if we were there, we wouldn't have killed the prophets. We know that Israel was bad. We know that our forefathers were that way. We know that a lot of times Israel didn't listen to Elijah Israel mistreated a lot of the prophets. But if we were there, the Pharisee says, we wouldn't have done that. We wouldn't have killed them. And Jesus says, no, you said it yourselves. Those are your forefathers and you are just like them. Why? Because the religious leaders turned against John the Baptist and ultimately they have Jesus crucified and killed. Right? And so they have that same heart of murder just like the sinful Israelites who killed the prophets. But here's where I'm reading this and I'm saying, If I was there in the New Testament, I would have worshipped Jesus. If I was there during Jesus' time, I wouldn't have hurled insults at him. I would have believed in you, Jesus. I'm not like the Pharisees. I'm just like the Pharisees. I love to study. I love to be right. I love to show you how certain interpretations are right and certain interpretations are wrong. I love to quote commentators. That's why today, purposely, I'm quoting commentators to make the point. That's what the Pharisees did. This rabbi said this. Now, that's not wrong, but they did it in rejection of Jesus. And they did it to press down people. A lot of times we have to look in the mirror and we have to look at it that if we were there, beloved, including me, if we were there when Jesus walked this earth, there's a pretty good chance that we would have said, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And there's a reason why. Because apart from what happened after his death, which is he died for our sins, made peace between us and God possible, the Holy Spirit then comes upon us, then our eyes are open to the truth, then we see what Jesus is saying. Apart from that supernatural miracle happening, 
what Jesus does is, is when all of his teaching, you read through, you read through Matthew. There's a reason why it's the religious leaders who hate him. They knew all of the Old Testament teachings, but they hated him because all he does is he attacks the self. He, he, he does this loving attack where systematically he tears yourself down until you break, until you're nothing, until you repent and you mourn. And that's why the first beatitude was, blessed are the poor in spirit. The problem is not the physical. The problem is not that anything else but that we are born not poor in spirit. Our whole entire world system, beloved, including ministry achievement, is built on what? Being proud in spirit. Being successful in spirit. Being, look at my resume, look at what I have to stand on. But being poor in spirit is actually to come to a place where I put it before you that, that me, you, we cannot come to that part, that place apart from Jesus doing work in our hearts is to actually come to the point where we say, God, you know, as good as I am, so God, I give money here. I, I, I did this good deed here. I serve in church. Uh, I, I do this. I do this. But none of that is righteous enough, Lord. As much as I do, I recognize where I'm sinful, but even the things I try to do to make up what I've done wrong, Lord, I'm still spiritually bankrupt when I come before you. I am nothing before you, Lord. Nothing. I have nothing to offer. I'm not as good as those Pharisees. I don't know my Bible like that. I'm not as righteous as John the Baptist. I can't, can't do that. But Lord, I, I, will you change me? Will you save me? I need you. All my achievements in life are rubbish apart from a relationship with you. I need you. I don't need the Messiah to come and overthrow the Roman government. I don't need a lot of money or comforts. Or, and that's what the Beatitudes are saying. You see, everything that the world builds around success, achievement, power, economics, military power, the comfortable life that comes with it, all the stuff that you and I enjoy and we need to thank God for, safety, all of that, it's good stuff from God, but it begins to dominate our world where then we realize we worship a Christianity that's easy, but not Jesus. Beloved, if they took away the tax break for giving, giving donations, would we still give? If they took away the right to come to church, would we still come? If we started getting persecuted, would we still worship him? If Christianity became hard, would we still claim Christianity? Everything that the world has built up is the opposite of what Jesus is trying to say, this is what my kingdom is about. And that's what makes his message ultimately offensive that they want to kill him. And that's why I am the first one to admit to you that if I were there... I would be the Pharisee, and I would say, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. But by the grace of God, Jesus says, Hanley, I see your heart. I see that you're blind. So everything that they're saying, I am going to go to the cross, and I will be crucified. I will be reviled. I will be insulted. I will take every opposition. I will bear even the weight of eternal judgment and separation from my God uh, temporarily. I will go through hell and back just so that your eyes can be opened so that you can see and that you can learn what it means to have true peace with God. And beloved, 
positionally, we are saved eternally. But each and every day, I think if we're honest, we all struggle with having peace with God. We all struggle. We all struggle. And so it's very interesting right, when we consider that, that each and every day, we need to go before God and say, God, I am not that content with things in life. Lord, help me. Help me. Now, I want to say a a word to those of you who are truly suffering. There are some of you in here, we pray for your suffering. You're in a, a, a marriage or a relationship where you've done everything you can and your heart truly longs for righteousness, but you feel stuck. God sees you, and he understands that, and he offers the peace, but the peace doesn't come easy. The way that it came through Jesus wasn't easy. The peace doesn't come easily. He he may not remove the pain, but if you reach for him, he's there. Some of you, you have physical ailments and disease, and it's painful. And God may not remove you from that cancer, meaning you'll still have to go through the chemo, the radiation, the treatment, some of you, it may be a life-threatening situation. Some of you, you're in this, this state of life where financially you're just trying everything you can. It's hard. Some of you, you're looking for work. It's hard. Some of you, you're in this dead-end job where it's hard, it's stressful. Some of you, it's whatever it is. It's stressful. Life is hard. But you see how the Beatitude speaks to us? It says you're under Roman oppression, and I won't remove that. You might still be poor, but you will flourish if you have a relationship with Jesus. Same message to us, but it's, it's, it's not Roman oppression and it might not be poverty. So whatever struggle that you're going through and whatever suffering that you're enduring, Jesus is saying that if you have a relationship with him, you can actually flourish compared to what the world tells you. All right, The world tells you you're miserable. Oh, uh, you know, woe is you. Woe is you, the world says. But Jesus says, woe is the other people. Blessed are you. Let me read you all the Beatitudes. I want you to see the eternality of this. How if you can hold on to the opposite of instant gratification, called eternal gratification, that your heart can flourish. Matthew 5, 3, starting there. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Future, tense but they have the kingdom of heaven now. Verse 4, right? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy when they come before God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God when you go into eternity. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. When it really matters, the Father will declare you his own. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It belongs to them now. Look at verse 3 and verse 10. They're like bookends. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven now, but it will be realized in the future. And then verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who are poor in spirit, who are humble and broken, who don't have any power or strength in and of themselves, can't even defend themselves, will be persecuted. And... They will not be seen as mighty and strong, but 
They, but the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. You see the bookends, verse 3 and 10. Then verse 11, expanding on it, once again, the reward is great in heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, not because the insults will go away, but because your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecute the prophets who are before you, and the reward is great. Why is it in heaven? Because that's where Jesus is. And so the day that we see Jesus is the day when all gratification will be delivered. And this is a very hard message when we live in a world that's driven by instant gratification. So the big idea this morning is this. Christ suffered to mediate peace on our behalf so that we could flourish as heirs of his kingdom. Christ suffered to mediate peace on our behalf so that we could flourish as heirs of his kingdom. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you now and we thank you because your son went to the cross and he mediated the ultimate peace. He mediated the peace that we so desperately need, needed, the peace that we didn't have because sin, our sin stood in between you, a holy God, and us, unrighteous sinners. Father, help us to see what you saved us from. You didn't just save us from hell, you saved us from ourselves. Father, I confess to you, we confess to you, that it's very likely because we, we, we live on this side of America, we live in a very comfortable position compared to some place in the world, that we would have been offended by Jesus' message. And we confess, Lord, that we would have cried out, crucify your son. Lord, thank you for forgiving us. Thank you, Lord, for being merciful to us. Father, help us, Lord, daily to grow in our love for Jesus, understanding what it means to cherish the cross. Help us, Lord, to begin to have and understand what it truly means to be poor in spirit, but to be rich in Christ. And may that give us peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.